0: Welcome to the Wadsworth Public Library Podcast. This episode is the second in a six-part series covering the history, stories, landmarks, and traditions of Wadsworth, Ohio. This live recorded presentation is of local historian Roger Havens as he walks us through the book Wadsworth Heritage by Eleanor Shapiro. If this is your first time listening, be sure to check out the previous episodes in this series as the class moves chronologically through history And builds off the previous subjects all right so um from what i remember i think we ended on page 45 where it talks about through the woods through the woods is about where the first schools were located and because when they came out here obviously it was all wilderness and we're in the connecticut western reserve there was nothing in connecticut law mandatory any type of schooling for this area i mean out in actual connecticut in the colony they had a school system up and running but they didn't have anything out here so the pioneers had to fend for themselves so one of them took it upon themselves to build a log cabin that was dedicated just to be a school and it was located um, where hartman road intersects with broad street so just out here past the high school on the right-hand side, close to where Hartman Road comes in, so that was named because most of the pioneers, of course, were settling right there at Western Star, which is the the border there between Wandsworth and Norton, and um, so that was the first schoolhouse. And so you know, whatever half a dozen to a dozen kids, neighborhood kids, would go there and be taught. And the first one was a private school. In other words. Um, private meaning that the pioneering families would have to contribute to the teacher's cost. And sometimes they would just give her goods, sometimes they would give her actual money, sometimes they'd provide her with things that she needed where she was living, so there was a bartering system there. And later on, they started a second school as the population grew, and especially to the north of uh, Broad Street, so it takes you over to akron road so the second schoolhouse was at the intersection of akron road and hartman road so they called it the north school so the north school up there and then a few miles down the road to the south was the south school so those were the two uh actual pioneer schoolhouses that were built and when they built those they also included in there that the churches could use them on the weekends And uh, so then the churches, well, at least the different religions, of course, there were more than two religions. I mean, um, there were, you know, at least a half a dozen religions that were represented at the beginning. And so then they would rotate off the use of those schools. And then others just uh, held services like the Amish do today in their barns or some big area at their home. But back in those days, that's where they started their schools. So up here, I put the first schools. These are the first schools that were downtown Wadsworth. I did touch on it a little bit the other day. And the one to the left, that was a one-room schoolhouse that was right behind St. Mark's Church in its day. Here, it looks like it was (laughs) ready to be hauled down, but that's the only picture that uh, we've come across in the Historical Society. And they called that the Little Red Schoolhouse because it had a red door hard to see the red door with a black and white photo and then when that got outgrown because the population in the downtown area was growing then they um, replaced it with a double wide or a double school and that one's the one that's at 166 north Pardee street still exists it's a duplex and uh, that was called the long school not because of anything except for its length. Uh, There was no Mr. Long or Mrs. Long. It was Long uh, because it was a two um, double-wide school. The primary students were in the left-hand side and the uh, intermediate kids were in the right-hand side. And this was located at the time where Save-A-Lot's parking lot is, right across from First Christian Church. And so it got raised up off the foundation and moved there and turned into a residence eventually. So a lot of, and I mentioned this last time, a lot of buildings moved in that history. So so that's described on page 45 and 46, we get to 47. Now remember back in those days, kids only went to sixth grade and then they were done. They all lived on farms. They were all gonna be farmers. Why did they really need to go on? Except there were some professional people in town, judges, doctors, that sort of thing, that wanted to extend their child's education before they could go off to college. Otherwise, there'd be a huge gap in between. And so they called those academies that were open uh, in the area. And ours eventually opened, called the Wadsworth Academy on page 47. And they hired a guy, actually they stole him from Sharon Center Academy and told him, hey, if you come to Wadsworth, we'll build you your own building. You don't have to share it with a church or whatever. So he initially came to Wadsworth. Uh, His first classes that he held started out at the St. Mark's Church location. And uh, now that would have been a, well, he used that structure in the meantime. I'm not sure if he may have been in there when it was still a log cabin and then a couple of years later because he started in 1839 and he was here till 1846 and so he would have transitioned from the log cabin into the actual uh structure uh, which is the one standing there today but then they did build him his own schoolhouse and it was where trinity church sets today they're on high street and it was in the shape of an octagon so they called it the octagon this academy had all sorts of names the wadsworth academy the octagonal academy the round academy because the octagon looked roundish and so he had his own school so they uh kept to their promise of getting him his own facility he went on to teach like i say till 1846. And then uh, somebody else took over after him. And then in 1870, uh, they finally came through with Ohio laws on education and how they were going to educate their kids. So in 1870 was kinda when the public school started, which then they built the, what they called the Union School over here where Central is today. And that was Wadsworth's first public school under the plan of the Ohio laws. Eventually they hauled that down and that's where Central is today. And so that was for the city kids. Now the country kids, they had to go to a different school. We didn't bus them in from out in the country. They got bused into Wadsworth or today's Wadsworth, but it was there where Isham School is today because West Street here in Wadsworth, that was the Western border of Wadsworth. So, the next property over, they built the school there and actually it was started out in the old Mennonite college after they went defunct, so they used that building and that's when they closed all the 10 one-room schoolhouses out throughout the the countryside and some of the one-room schoolhouses are still standing today. I can think of one right away is out there at the corner of uh, Akron Road and County Line Road. It's kind of hard to see. The trees are grown up around it. Um, But it was, um, they called that the Bigelow School. Bigelow's was the farm right across the street and uh, the property across the street. So it got named the Bigelow. Uh, There's another one, I think I described it the other day, is out there on. Rymer Road actually, yeah, Reimer Road across from that church that keeps changing its name Yeah, our father's they're the key to our father's house and uh, So there's one there. It's a painted brick Building, but if you actually look at it, you'll see that yeah, that was a one-room schoolhouse there was another down by the intersection of uh, 57 and Rymer Road and Just when you get there to the stop sign if you're heading towards River Sticks, and you look to the left you'll see a house there it has a little bit of an addition put on the back that was a one room schoolhouse there's one out on uh western uh, wall road where the joneses live uh close to where um, newcomers road comes out that one's still there that's a wooden structure i think that's the last of the wooden structures that's still standing then there was another on the other part of wall road when you went east of uh, Main Street, Mount Eaton Road, that was still there when I was a kid. I remember seeing it uh, as you drove down Akron Road, er, I'm sorry, Mount Eaton Road. You could see to the east and there was a creek right there and eventually they took down the one end of it and they parked their tractors in there. So that was close to the old wall farm and they called that the wall school. Oh, there's another one out. uh, If you ever go out Johnson Road, get to the intersection of silver creek and johnson road and head towards norton so you turn left there and before you go down the dip on left hand side next to the exercise place now used to be wadsworth furniture on uh, the east side of it here that's that's a wooden structure and that was an old one-room schoolhouse so um, a lot of the old wooden one-room schoolhouses got torn down and then replaced by brick ones Used to be one there at the uh, three-way stop on the way on College Street, out towards the hospital and you get to the three-way stop. And now it's Davis Painting building there. So there was a brick uh, one-room schoolhouse there. So Wadsworth Township was supposed to have 12 one-room schoolhouses and you'll hear people say, yes, because that's the way townships were divided up into 12 districts but two of them in wadsworth kind of combined they shared so that's why we only had 10. Uh, getting back to mcgregor so so he had pretty much the kids of the doctors the lawyers the professional people around that could afford to send them to his academy and obviously for the most part those kids prospered and also became doctors and judges and lawyers and whatever and so one day, um, a couple of them were out visiting the Woodlawn Cemetery, and they were looking to see where he was buried. And they came across this little tombstone out there. And they said, "How sad that this guy who influenced us and made us prosperous and were um, and they liked this guy that he has such a small tombstone." So they took a collection of all his former students and. Uh, raised enough money to put that statue down there in the actual cemetery of the john mcgregor statue and put it uh the old tombstone which that's a story in itself because after the old tombstone was removed all i can figure is they must have taken it back close to where the octagonal church or the octagonal school was or his academy which now it's trinity church and i think it was back in the 70s or something They were doing some re-landscaping around Trinity Church, and somebody flipped over this flat stone, and it said John McGregor on it. Well, that creeped people out to no end. They thought, oh my gosh, the church was built on top of a graveyard, and so it started its own little scandal until somebody said, no, no, that was his. They hauled it out of there after uh, the statue was placed there. And that statue had to cost quite a bit of money they brought the granite stone the base of it the pedestal of it they had it hauled in from scotland only for the fact that's where he was from originally he left scotland at a young age with his family and came to the east coast of the united states so he graduated from st andrews in scotland but anyway i think that's why they got the granite base from there and then the actual sculpture was done over in italy in marble and it sent over and then they put it all together there. Now he's, unfortunately, he's missing his hands. Uh, Vandals crawled up there and lopped his hands off. He should be there with his right finger pointing into his left hand that's holding a book. Yeah, he was an educator. I think he's missing half his nose, but I don't stand there and really gawk at him. He creeps me out because, what they say is his eyes follow you all through that cemetery. Once you start walking up that sidewalk, he's looking at you. You pass him, he's looking at you. All right, so that's the history of the McGregor Monument um, there on page 48, and I think it goes to 49. But now there's pictures, and interesting, there's selection, uh, here, selection, pit, pictures. This is the page I'm at here at 40, uh, which should be around 48, 49 and it's Owen Brown. Well, why would they put a picture of Owen Brown in here? He never lived in Wadsworth, but he's pictured on here. Well, his brother was the one that lived in the log cabin that sat right here where the library is today. He's the one I mentioned at the last thing that went back to the East Coast and loaded his wagon up with books so he and his wife could start a library in this spot and loan it out to all the pioneers downtown or close by. So Owen was his brother and Owen owned property in Hudson. He owned property here in Wadsworth. And he's the one that when Frederick, his brother's um, infant child died shortly after birth, Owen stepped forward because there was no cemetery. He stepped forward and said, I will donate an acre of my land that's located just beyond uh, St. Mark's Church down in the, the valley there and so that his niece had a place to be buried so they put him in there because he donated that acre although then i I come to learn he didn't outright donate he said i'll donate this you can start putting people in there uh, but i'm still going to maintain the pasture rights to it which means if somebody would come to him and say hey can i rent out that that acre to feed their sheep or goats or cows or let them graze or whatever then he could rent it out because he owned the pasture rights so eventually um, the people got wind that you know that may not be right after more and more people were being buried there and they wanted to clear it off and make it look nicer and so they ended up paying him I think two hundred dollars to buy his pastoral rights back so anyway Owen Brown lived up in Hudson his claim to fame too is his son was john brown the abolitionist we don't have absolute documentation that john brown ever visited here but he did like this uncle and i think they were close so i we're going to assume that john brown visited wadsworth pretty frequently being a bit pretty close so that was 1817 next page shows uh, one of the early wadsworth mills uh, which is on what is now state street so state street or ripman road down here in the south end as you leave wadsworth uh it runs parallel to blockers run the creek until you get to uh civil uh, road but down in there that's where we had mills set up because you had three creeks in wadsworth kind of coming together in the south end and it provided enough water power to power these mills and as a kid that area was just known as the town dump that's where you hauled your stuff in cars or trucks or whatever and then you went back there and they were constantly burning trash I mean it was just like a. I I never went back there with my parents when it wasn't just smoldering because they would just dump everything and burn it then down at the bottom of that picture it shows general elijah wadsworth's um, tombstone that's out in canfield ohio about 60 miles due east of here and that's where he lived his house and it says up there part of the original general wadsworth home still standing in canfield so his house was in the square at one time and that's again when when uh, the pioneers were coming through they were stopping at his house to purchase because he owned a lot of property here in the wadsworth area hence they named it after him so it it says part of the original his house was so big they split it in half so that's half of the house and the other half was uh separated out into another dwelling and that happened here in wadsworth with the pardee family uh, Aaron Pardee, who was the first mayor of Wadsworth, he lived uh, across from St. Mark's Church around Watrousa, and his land went all the way to the south end of Wadsworth. I mean, where the match company was located, that was the back part of his. You know, he had a 100 acre farm, but the frontage was up here. And after he was dead and gone, and His house stood there and I think they split it into three different houses and put them over on Watrusa Watrusa's Wasn't there at the time But they split his house into thirds and only I think one third is left there the one white house uh, right in the middle of the block And then uh, the old stone store. That's where the old citizens bank was which is the bank now It's a real estate down here uh on the corner of uh college and main street uh the three-story place so before that it was the stone store and that was built by the parties aaron party's brothers uh, they were builders alan and john party and so they built that old stone store they they started like the second or first general store in wadsworth and it was up close to where sacred heart church is today on the corner of fairlawn and broad and then they built their stone store uh, downtown and you know it's since been removed of course but um, they were pretty prolific in building buildings downtown so that one's gone the only one that i can think of that's downtown that was built by the Pardee brothers is the kelly graham building across the street here next to the strand theater and that's an all wooden structure underneath the facade And It's just unusual that a wooden structure to last that long now. It's covered up with siding and it looks brand new, but uh, And only two-thirds of the original building is there the the Boyer's uh, Boyert's office there the Well, dr. Boyer That one that was built in the 1970s So I don't know what happened to the (laughs) that third of the building whether it had a fire maybe and got torn down or they tore it down purposely but the other two-thirds of it was built in 18 right around 1839 so that's an old old building uh the old mennonite church it says on route 57 uh, just to clarify that right now we call it just wadsworth road or diagonal road 57 used to run all the way to um greenwich road there were the Three-way stop sign is and then it dead ended there. Well, they shifted that part over and then built the new 57 that now goes to Orville. and so if you come down 57 coming up or coming out of the uh, west let's say you just came out of uh, River Sticks and you're coming back to Wadsworth then you have the overpass that sort of thing but if you kind of look to the left where the hospital is, you could see where it dead ends now on that part. So if you go to the, or if you go to the three-way stop sign and turn right and go, it dead ends because it got cut off when the freeway was put in or the, the new 57 was put in. But anyway, in the old part of that, uh, closer to the, the hospital entrance there off of um, Diagonal Road, you'll see a cemetery on the left-hand side, and that's where the old Mennonite church was. And because it was wooden, it got hauled down, they outgrew it, and then they bought the St. Mark's Church. So St. Mark's was the Mennonite church for the longest time until um, then they got bigger yet, and they built their new place out on Treese Road. So I think that was 1959, or at least St. Mark's bought it in 1959. Um, bought that building and now I still refer to it as St. Mark's but it's not St. Mark's anymore Um, it's pretty independent there's a picture of that party home unfortunately that's the best picture I mean we really don't have any clean photo of the party home so the street in front of it there is uh, College Street so it's set back they even had a tennis court which i found highly unusual that uh in the 1800s they had tennis courts he died i think in like 1903 or something so you know go back from there so you're talking about late 1800s and had an orchard and then again the farm went all the way back down over the hill and the next page judge william isle's house He lived at the corner of Hartman and Akron Roads. Actually, that schoolhouse that I called the North Schoolhouse would have been on his property. Uh, Again, at that intersection. There it shows John McGregor, and that's when he had hands and a book. And we do have an original picture of it, and uh, oh, and he has a full nose. So that was dedicated in 1887. And when he died he was only like 53 years old he ended up after he quit the academy business he went to work with his son archibald down in canton and his son ran the some kind of democratic news newspaper and ironically and whether or not you know this but the democrats back around the civil war era you know they were pro-slavery and so his son was always under fire because people around here were against slavery. So there's a few times his newspaper got broken into and they busted up as much as they could because they didn't wanna read this pro-slavery stuff. And John Pardee, oh and that Judge Isles, by the way, just as an FYI, he's the one that kinda led the search for Sylvia Beach when she went missing since he just lived down the road from them about a half mile. So he had good leadership skills and he's the one that, uh, he's the one that led that uh, group out to, you know, initially to search for her and then secondly to go back out and search for a body and wasn't successful, unfortunately. Oh, and the parties, another building that they built would have been over here I don't even know what's in the building now. It's where uh, the Wright store was, Spectrum, I think, Verizon, there in the corner across from the old bank on the corner of College and High Street. Um, There was a big hotel there called the National Hotel or originally named after the person who had it built. So it was called Butts Tavern and Hotel not referencing a part of the body it's a part of a name so Butts Tavern was there they helped build that in the 1830s or they built it and that one caught on fire um, I think simply they were the managers were making breakfast that morning and it took a spark or creosote buildup or whatever and it caught on fire and it was a windy day it nearly burned down the entire town They kept trying to figure out how to put because it was an all wood structure and the same thing of course has happened over medina twice their city burnt down during those pioneer days because they were like wadsworth all the downtown buildings were made of wood and if one caught on fire and because they're all next to each other and if the wind is blowing just right or whatever they had a hard time putting it out we at least had some semblance of a fire department whether it was a bucket brigade or eventually a tank that was pulled by horses that they could pump the water in medina's case they didn't have their own fire department and so they were at the mercy of lodi coming out to put out the medina fire but that's why you go to medina and all their buildings look of the same architectural design because they were all rebuilt at the same time and in Wadsworth, we have kind of a hodgepodge because some are still the old wooden buildings. And a lot of ours, the building owners, ripped down the old facade of the building and had them re in a different design. All right, John McGregor, next page, Aaron Pardee. Again, he was the first mayor of Wadsworth. His mother, um, well, his parents lived out in New York. His father died she took up all the kids and gosh there were seven boys and she moved out here and her property originally was um i think they bought it off of the hudson family which hudson that guy his dad's the one that started the village of hudson and his wife was um sisters to Frederick Brown who lived here in this spot so his sister lived next door with her husband they sold the farm mrs. Pardee for whatever influenced her to do what she did moved her whole family out here and these sons then prospered you know obviously the one became mayor the others were builders downtown one of them was a doctor and there's an inter- interesting story about him because he was the seventh son does anybody know what the seventh son means in a family? Well, back in those days, the superstition was that the seventh son in a family was also blessed with healing powers. And there was an incident where George was his name, and he was just a young kid, you know, 10 years old or something. And the neighbor out in New York got, or their, their child got deathly ill. And so they summoned him over to cure this other child. And, you know, I'm sure they, they took him over there and the kid didn't know what to do. And they were saying, oh, you know, place your hands on this child, you know, do whatever. And he followed that. Well, miraculously, the child got better and lived and survived. So from then on, he was, well, long story short, he became a doctor and, uh, that's what he did but he was also stricken with uh, issues as a child um, physically and uh, so he died at an early age but when they built that stone building when his brothers built that stone store over there in the corner they built a special room for him at the top to have a medical school And so as medical school, and back in those days, there wasn't a whole lot to medicine. And, I mean, it was voodoo medicines and setting broken arms and those types of things and pretty much cutting people open afterwards to see what they died of and they could tell what disease they could have had. And then on the death certificate, they could write down, this is what they died of. Uh, You know, infections, there wasn't a whole lot they could do with infections. You know, penicillin didn't come in until early 1900s. So, you know, people that have just minor cuts, you know, on rusty iron, you know, could end up dying just of blood poisoning as such. So, he opened up a medical school up there where he would teach others, you know, about medicine. He was certified enough that they could get license from him. Well, then the the other part of the story is he would have these students and have them up in that upstairs and have the examining room. And he informed them, you know, the only way that you could really learn anatomy, you know, there was really no hands-on type things, but he says, you know what? Pretty much, I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but if you want to work on real cadavers, There's plenty of them being hauled down to the cemetery on a daily basis And it's up to them on what they want to do So some of those students or their parents would hire uh, Grave robbers To go down into our cemetery and remove they called them resurrectionalists (laughs) So they resurrected the dead That happened all over ohio because uh, and other states because there was at that time there was no way of getting a human cadaver. I mean, even one that, you know, nobody knows them, they're a pauper, whatever, but no one had access to the body and they were just forced to bury them down at the cemetery. And we had a lot of those types because we had the railroad tracks in the South End and you'd have hobos and bums and that sort of thing coming through. And some of them, you know, they would die in the South End and then we were required to bury them um, or they got hit by trains or got drunk and fell in front of the train and got their Got dismembered But anyway, so that's why they put fences up around all the cemeteries And the whole (laughs) the old story is it's not like the people inside want to get out because they can't And the people on the outside really don't want to get in there unless they (laughs) have to But the real reason was it was more of a distraction for the body snatchers, because they'd have to get them up over the fence and delay their time in and out. So what they would do is, uh, because behind the cemetery, it was all wooded. And so they could easily hide back there too. And after a funeral, um, the body would be taken down there. And of course, back in those days, there's no vault or anything. They just put the wooden coffin down into the ground and uh, covered it with dirt and after the funeral party would leave they'd come out of the woods with their picks and shovels and a big gunny sack and they would uh, dig down in the freshly dug dirt and pop open the part of the top lid and put some kind of hook and chain and put it up under the head of the uh person in there and drag it out through the top of the coffin. And then, of course, they would recover up the coffin so nobody knew the difference. And then they would make arrangements to sell those bodies. When people got wise to this, of course, it was very much against the law, but there wasn't enough law enforcement for somebody to sit there, you know, after somebody got buried. So family members knew about this, and so they would, um, they would pull a grave shift that's where that that uh, came in. The grave shift shift was those people who stayed in the cemetery all night uh, to protect um, the body, and they would do that for about the next week until they knew that the body was starting to rot so bad it couldn't be used. Like I say, that was a that was a common occurrence, and uh, and ironically. Um, George dr. George party is buried in the old part of the cemetery. His is one of those big white obelisks. That's there And I always wonder whether his body's there Buried under that obelisk or whether some of his students got revenge and hauled him up and out so again, that was a common practice and um, I always tell people on the um, Cemetery walks that these are tombstones. They're here to represent somebody but not all of them there's somebody buried under it, especially sylvia beach of course she was lost in the woods and never found but she has a monument down there and there's civil war uh, monuments down there that you know the people died in battle down in tennessee or kentucky or wherever and they buried them down there but a tombstone was erected up here for the parents okay um the disciple church on that next oh i'm sorry i skipped um Judge Allen Party, uh, he was a builder. Aaron Party, his brother, the mayor. Um, Aaron was also a judge and lawyer. Then you have a sketch of the, the old round school, the McGregor Academy, the Octagonal Academy drawn there. So again, that was located where the Trinity Church was when the Trinity Church or Trinity Reformed Church or the German Reformed Church when they started their church up um, because at the time the only available church that they had to attend was the um, high church out on uh, eastern road so there's a lot of people lived in town that was a long haul to get out to eastern road so they finally moved their church closer to downtown and uh, so they bought the old academy and set up their church in there then when that one got too small for their congregation then they built a wooden structure then eventually they hauled it down and now they have the brick one there so what did they do with the old round school so evidently because they really didn't destroy buildings back in those days they just didn't burn them down they recycled them so that one they took it over to the next street over which is north lyman street you know in its backyard and then it was used for I don't know some other kind of splinter church used it for a while and then eventually it disappeared so I don't know what disappeared means it could have been dismantled and the boards made into sheds or whatever to some of those houses there or maybe a house itself because that's what they did I can tell you what happened to this the second Trinity Church the the wooden one that took place of it, uh, a guy in town bought it, dismantled it, and built a house, kind of an apartment house, over by Durling Park, uh, where Humboldt goes into Durling Park. That's Humboldt and Boyer. But that house has been removed and the parking lot for uh, Durling Park is there now. And they called it the Pumpkin House because he painted it orange for whatever reason. So the pumpkin house is gone, and that was uh, Bender, I think, uh, that built that. So the Disciple Church on that next page, I don't know where I'm at. I haven't moved any of these slides. Oh, okay. There's a better picture of the uh, McGregor Academy instead of that drawing that's in the book. So it's kind of an impressive looking thing. And here he is with his hand and book. I did a close-up of it. And his nose is still on there. And we just cleaned him as a, uh, this past summer for the cemetery, the Friends of Woodlawn Cemetery. OK, down at the bottom under the, the Disciple Church, again, uh, that's the first Christian church. That's the original part out by the street across from Save-A-Lot. And uh, you can see that it's changed tremendously. But that was built the same year as St. Mark's Church, 1842 and then the next page is the first methodist church in wadsworth it was built in 1835 and the methodists would be the oldest congregation in wadsworth because the first pioneers one of them at least one of them was a methodist family so this was built in the parking lot there by oj work auditorium cis right where mill street comes out onto main street so the hard family h-a-r-d which was a pioneer family they built the church for the congregation and it says that one was built in 1835 that one eventually got hauled down and replaced by a brick structure in the same location and for those that grew up in wadsworth that was called the annex building of central school it was that building that was separate from there and it was part of the old church the remnants of the old church not this one but the second one and uh, they eventually sold that to the school district and when they built their newest one there on broad street which sadly replaced the ej young mansion that once stood there so they bought that property i think that that house was going into disrepair and back in the 50s i believe they bought and hauled down that beautiful house at the end of highland avenue uh, across on broad okay page 49 talked about after mcgregor and another guy wallace ross he tried to open up a select school again select schools being kind of the equivalence to high school before he went off to college and just reading that description it doesn't tell you where it was located it just says on main street south of the bank And I believe that's where the Wadsworth Brewery is today because that eventually, that building was called the Ross Pharmacy Building. That building eventually became Rexall Drugs for some of you that have been around a while. And Rexall is where the Ritzman started. And so that was Ritzman's very first building before they started expanding and we have that uh in the museum we do have the apothecary that came out of that pharmacy so most of the life of that building before it was the substation and before it was the brewery it was a pharmacy in downtown wadsworth built in probably 1880 in that time period so pioneer higher education at the bottom of that page talks about uh the western reserve college that was set up in hudson so that's where a lot of our uh, 1800s kids went off to college just up to hudson that was the closest one and uh, it no longer exists in hudson now it's in cleveland which now they call it the western reserve university so the one in hudson was the predecessor to it being moved to cleveland okay next page um yes But there is Western Reserve Academy in Hudson. Did it take over the the buildings? You know, I don't know that. And like I say, this doesn't tell a whole lot on that because I wondered the same thing. It it could be, but again, you know, going back that long, a lot of those buildings were wooden buildings that probably got replaced. That'd be interesting to see. That's what I'm hoping that you do too. That I give you some facts, and you know, I talked about the Pentamite Wars, and you may think I never heard of that, and that you Google it and really research it, and see, you know, what that what they were all about. Not a whole lot of people got killed there, but it's funny they, they talk about, you know, the battles. So I think there were more skirmishes about the Pennsylvania people that thought it was their property, and the Connecticut people thought it was their property, and. I think they just had good old shoot shootouts and not many people killed but it caused a lot of unrest and i'm sure william penn didn't sleep very well at night here we go with the pioneer libraries this next page this is the one you were asking about page 50. so it talks about how judge brown who was lived here in the winter of 1822 in the winter of that year, Judge Brown returned from a visit to Connecticut with a donation of his old neighbors in Colebrook, Connecticut, a collection of books which he brought home in a chest a distance of 600 miles in the month of February. Well, if it was February of this year, that would have been a heartbeat. But uh, back then, who knows what uh, the weather was. Well, 18, well, that was a few years after the... Uh, the year without a summer. Right. That was 1816. How would he, what route would he take? Yeah. Well, there were two possible routes. On the people that came in from the East Coast, most of the people that came from New York, like the parties, they would have taken the northern route, up through through Buffalo, oh, the buffalo. and then along Lake Erie, where if it was frozen, they could be out there pretty much on the dirt, or the beach area or the ice. And again, if you go back in the first couple of chapters, it talks about some of their experience about the ice and breaking through and things got ugly. But, uh, or, and there was the southern route that uh, came up and it looks like it would, you know, south of the hills or the mountains and then up through Pittsburgh. And so kind of a southerly, but they said no matter which route you took, it took the same amount of time. But yeah, and these would have just been old paths and stumps and divots and you know, nothing, nothing was going to be easy, but for him to, and... Uh, too many hotels on the way, huh? No, but there had been a few, and I'm sure they were mapped out and people shared them, but yeah, but you're right. Uh, because, you know, remember Pennsylvania kind of settled before Ohio, so there could have been designated cabins or i'm sure people were a lot friendlier. just don't stop by unless you're pennsylvania dutch don't stop by a yankee or blah 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 so anyway that answers your question about well it doesn't answer a lot of questions but it tells you uh, that's what he did and it would have taken about a month to travel one way by cart okay so um Pioneer military records. I'm gonna kind of skip through this. We, early on the uh, state required each town to have its own militia for protection. And so we had our own little Wadsworth thing. I don't think it had really any responsibilities. Maybe once a month they would get together and do a military drill. And here they would do it out here in the East Park when it was a much bigger and so they would march around and do whatever and i I suspected a lot of drinking afterwards we ended up having a company like a military building eventually and it's where the old i'm going to call it now the old fire station is today so just up here on lyman street is where it was more like a big barn that uh, the militia or the uh, people who volunteered their services but I guess they would be the equivalents to like uh, Minutemen if they needed, or if the, there was an Indian uprising, or the British headed back into this territory, they could call people together and uh, protect the town. Okay, on page uh, 51, it says Revolutionary War. I'm not going to go through those names, only that four of them are buried here in Woodlawn Cemetery Michael Brouse, James Gifford elisha hinsdale and philemon kirkham and interesting enough kirkham and hinsdale both lived over across the end of the norton border but then they moved into wadsworth elisha he was buried in western star cemetery and then when the other family members started dying off they bought a plot here in wadsworth so they had him hauled up and out and brought him to wadsworth Otherwise, we'd only have three Revolutionary War people there. And that would have made five at Western Star. So it balanced us out. War of 1812, I think we have 13 veterans of War of 1812 buried down in Woodlawn Cemetery. Then uh, there's a statement here on page 51 that from 1840 to 1860, Wadsworth was a dull place to be. Nothing really happened. Uh, people were still clearing the land and doing their farms, and you know there were a few stores downtown. Not not even many stores downtown. Maybe a couple of wooden structures. Uh, of course, you had the stone general store, stone house, um, but not many of those buildings. They didn't start cropping up till the late 1860s, post Civil War. Let's put it that way. Uh, in the 70s. 52 just to point out the first paragraph on 52 and we do see that in the woodlawn Cemetery records that there was a spike in people dying from 1844 to 1848 It's because there was an epidemic that came through Eurosephalitis or or Urosephalus yeah, I don't know my Latin but anyway that struck and it was one of those uh, contagious disease a lot of these diseases were caused because of uh insufficient sewage basically you know outhouses and things that leached into the water table and that type of thing so and that's why it was popular to drink whiskey because that was processed and that was safer to drink than the water and so a lot of alcoholism also was part of uh, the pioneer life and postmasters there if you're doing uh, research on the postmasters of wadsworth go at it now book two we we're in 53 and i could spend a whole class just talking about the coal mines and i'm not going to do that you can read it on your own because it is a fascinating read um through that but this all started the farmers discovered um, coal on their property, on their farmland. So they were using the coal, they would dig it out and use it like in their furnace, their wood burning stoves, things like that to heat up. So, but there was no market for it because there was no way to get it out of Wadsworth besides on um, carts. So when the canal, the Erie Canal came through in Barberton, that kind of opened up a little bit of a market. You still had to transport it over, over to Barberton and back then Barberton was called New Portage. Old Portage was Akron, so New Portage, before it was named for OC Barber, uh, it was just called uh, the uh, New Portage. You know, that being named, I don't know if you even know this, but because there was a portage from Cuyahoga River to the north, just north of Wadsworth, as you're going into Sharon Center, that's where the, um, the the divide continental divide yeah there is a barn in sharon center that when it rains that the water on one side rolls towards lake erie and the water on the other side goes to the ohio river but anyway once the um oh the portage yeah because if you know the crooked river the cuyahoga river it heads south and then it heads back north because it can't go anywhere it can't get past the continental divide so when the native americans they would come down on their canoes in cuyahoga river and they wanted to get south of the border <laughs> or at least uh to this side or get to the tuscaras river they had to carry their canoes across that continental divide so when they carry those canoes it's called a portage you're portaging your canoe and so they would carry it across Up through Akron, I know their, uh, well, Portage Path, that's how it got its name. So they'd have to carry the canoes, pop them in there, and now they could go all the way to the Gulf of Mexico if they wanted. Anyway, that's why they called it New Portage, because uh, it being part of the portage between those. So finally, you know, when I said 1840s to 1860s, things were dull. Things started happening in the 1860s early 1860s because railroads became popular and we were able to attract a railroad track to come through Wadsworth. Now, I said we were able to attract it, we were able to bribe it to come to Wadsworth. And what they did is they took up what they called subscriptions, and people could donate money that they could give, you know, if they raised enough and raised the most, then the railroad would come through and they'd get the money for it so is more like a bribe but Wadsworth raised tons of money to do this through the Beach family and the Loomis family so it was a single track that came through it was the Great Western Railroad and it was just a single track but that single track it was also a steam engine train what steam engines need obviously water which wasn't a big deal they just put it A big water tower down there at the depot but they also needed wood at the time to fire up their boilers so around Silver Creek crossing a lot of men were hired just to go cut wood split it and have it ready and salt to the railroads but then things got converted over to coal oh guess what Wadsworth had coal so they switched from the wood to the coal and boy did we have a lot of coal so our coal vein comes up into Wadsworth Township goes a little bit into Sharon Township doesn't go anywhere outside of Wadsworth Township besides Sharon just a little ways probably pretty much around the Continental Divide and then goes all the way south to Maslin so they call it the Maslin Basin of coal goes down through Doylestown, Rogue's Hollow I'm sure you've heard those stories over into Norton actually it starts at Talmadge and goes south to to Maslin. ours was kind of at the the basin of it which was one of the thicker seams and it was still only five foot thick in the south end of the township the way they got the coal out is they went like along Silver Creek and you have the the huge banks there embankment And they would drill in to the side of the bank or dig in knock it out and so they called that kind of a drift mine or have very little uh digging down in they would be more of a horizontal of the north end of wadsworth around weatherstone those were deep shaft mines so they had to go down in an elevator a hundred foot down and take all their equipment down there and their mules and everything like that so shaft mines up there and drift mines in the south part Um, obviously you know you get to the higher elevations up up that way so the coming of the railroad 1863 had a huge impact on wadsworth for the wood initially then the coal mines when the coal mines started petering out yeah close to 40 years later we still had the railroad track and that's when the factories the early 1900s when the factory started at Wadsworth because at first it was like well once the coal mines are depleted now people don't have jobs they are going to start leaving but fortunately the match company the injector the Wadsworth salt company the brickyard all those created um, more jobs and had it not been for the train this would have turned into a ghost town I'm just going to point out that at one point these poor guys that uh, Oh, and it was mostly Irish immigrants that came in and they were recruited because during the Civil War, all our men were off to war. So they had to recruit adults from Ireland and Canada to work in the mines. A lot of them were already over here because they worked on the canals. That's where the Irish came in and hence uh, the Catholics came in because before that there weren't many Catholics in Wandsworth. It took that Irish migration in uh, for that to happen. I think the the guys were paid like fifty cents a ton uh, for their coal, and a coal miner could maybe get three tons a day, so a buck and a half they would make a day in the mines. And again, that's all written in here again i just encourage you to read that in more detail Um, so the coal mines well at one point um and they used screens to kind of sift the coal after it came out they would haul haul the coal out on in coal cars and each uh, adult would put his initials on his coal car so they knew which one when they pulled it out what he would get credit for then they had a screen that they would run to get the stone out of it i think some of the miners were getting smarter to put larger pieces of rock mixed in with it to get the weight so then they reduced the uh the owners reduced the size of the screen to sift it out better which was actually taking coal out now now they're being cheated and so they went on strike so uh the Loomis family um Uh, the one well they were brothers so they sent some people down to virginia to recruit ex-slaves because remember civil war would have been over there i think this uh strike happened about right around 1880s they said okay if you guys aren't going to work we'll find our own workers and so they they brought back like 200 black people that volunteered to come but of course a lot of them didn't have anything to do because once they were kicked off the plantations they didn't have any options and so they described this as you know you're going to be digging black gold out of the land up in wadsworth and you're going to be paid nicely and they told them how much they were being paid and for people didn't get paid at all they thought this was great so they brought 200 of them what they failed to tell them is that they were strike breakers so then these blacks come in they unload at the train station uh, they start sorting them out to give them jobs and that sort of thing and suddenly the miners they're after these guys and threatening them so it ended up Loomis built a compound to put these people in their families to protect them and it was out there close to where CJ Dana Miller's plant is out there at the corner of Hame Town and uh, Portage is a Portage I guess you'd call it norton doylestown area eventually the strike got over with uh some of the blacks continued to work in the mine some of them got scared and went back right away and some of them stayed here and they settled in wadsworth along mill street and a lot of the black families that are in wadsworth are descendants from those i think it was e.j young and a couple other people uh threw some money in to Allow them to build their own church there on, on the corner of Mills and Kyle. Unfortunately, I think <laughs> their motivation was it would keep them out of the other churches, the white churches. So they built them a black church, and the black church is still there today. So again, I think those are the highlights. Uh, where are these coal mines? I say in your mind, if you make a diagonal line from river sticks which is in the far northwest corner of wadsworth township and then down at the, the high church eastern road draw a line there and everything to the north of that line was kind of the coal mine area closest to downtown wadsworth would be durling park area then down through red rock and down through the valley nothing in downtown wadsworth but you have to remember, they, they could only mine coal or get, get the mineral rights from farmers. And if the downtown was developed into individual houses, it'd take forever to get enough. So they went after the farmers on the outskirts of town and got their mineral rights and uh, could mine there. But all along Hartman Road, well, along Akron Road, there were Giant Eagle is. That was one of the largest um veins it's where that church is that's next to uh giant eagle and that was one of the largest mines there so who knows if the end of the world comes they're liable to just go down the old coal mines and survive the uh whatever happens and then along county line road on both sides in Norton and Wadsworth that was also a huge mine through there wherever you see the high tension electric lines going out outside uh, out by the blue sky that area that was all coal mine area kind of left over and what else do you do with that land now it's converted into at least uh, electric lines being strung um, through there So where that uh, power station is down there, the uh, transfer station on Silver Creek, there across the railroad tracks, that was huge mines down in there. And in fact, Dr. Carino said that was the last mine to close. It's after the old guy, the old prospector that would go back in there. And the one day there was a flood and his mule died and that's when he hung up his pick and said, I'm done. Well, when I was a kid, and it wasn't developed um, beyond Summit Street and um, Oak Street, and you went down the valley, that was all farmland at the time. And I just remember riding my bike back through the woods, and that sort of thing, and you'd come across these big mounds in the middle of nowhere. And I kept thinking, as kids, you didn't know what they were. And... They weren't really easy to go up and down on a bicycle, let's put it that way. And then I learned later that that was the slag pile. And, and I don't know if you've been around long enough, but every couple of years, there's a, oh, yeah. there's a cave-in. Yeah. And uh, the last one was up there at Clark's Corners or up behind Home Depot. And uh, a triplex up there, their, their basement fell. And then the house next door, it fell and they just come in and total it out. Before that, it was the one out on Johnson Road out there where I described where that um, one room schoolhouse is. And again, that would have been in the side. Uh, Far Avenue, Reimer Road, Weatherstone. I just jotted down some things in my notes. And again, that was a big boost to Wadsworth economy. And I'm gonna skip a couple of pages here. Uh, The downtown area on page 63, it starts talking about the building of some of these buildings downtown. The old Union School uh, was built in 1870. American Legion was built 1874, at least that building. The Legion wasn't there at the time. Oh gosh, I think the old Carolyn's Cupboard there, that has a date in the fabric of the building. I think it's 1883. So in the late 1880s, uh, again, the oldest one, oh, the IOF building, which is now the unwind building, that one was, is probably the oldest uh, modern building and that was 1867, I believe. And like I say, then it varies all through town um The o'neill's building that was early 1900s. So down here at the valley cafe And let's see i'm gonna skip to 66 67. It talks about captain theodore walbach So he was a professional photographer that settled here right after the civil war He was born I think in smithville but We thank him so much every day because he had a photography business Here in Wadsworth and at one time his office was above. uh, Well, what's? uh, the Domino's store And he also and I don't know whether I mentioned I think I may have mentioned this the last time His house was where the American Legion is today there on Main Street And when they went to build that building that house was sitting there and he ended up buying the house and moved it up here to the corner of Boyer and High Street. It's still there today. So it's where Durhammer had his old photography studio. Now it's a Erie Insurance. But it's the one right there at the corner. So uh, if you're into antiques or if you're out in an antique place and you see old photographs, a lot of them you know, in this area will, not a lot, but they'll say uh, Theodore Walbach emblazed in it so that you can tell that he took them. And most of these old pictures that I have, he went out and took those. By the way, this particular um, coal mine that I have up on the screen, that one was the one out there by the Giant Eagle. So it was a huge thing. Um, Here's one of the first steam locomotives. See where I'm at on, oh, there's his house, and that's that one just up the street on High Street. So this is Walbach here. There he is there. But that's just so fortunate to have that because most towns didn't have a professional photographers. So. But he took pictures of everyday life around Wadsworth. And this is the railroad track down at the south end. Um, this was the water tower for the steam engines located there. Oh, and this, by the way, is what the American Legion building looked like in its original form. And they eventually hauled down the, the facade of it. And, uh, of course, they customized it for the American Legion. But that's how fancy it used to look. More. What is it? What's printed on the top of it? It says the Steam Printing House. It was built as a print shop. And... Uh, so the date was 1874, it's right there. And so it was a huge printing company that printed the Wadsworth newspaper called the, um, the Enterprise, or the Wadsworth Enterprise. And it started in 1866. And then when he started getting a lot of business due to this kids' magazine, remember the Highlights magazine that kids got when they were kids and it was the thing to have? Well, back in the 1870s, the magazine to get was the Young Folks Gem. And it was started in Sharon Center and uh, actually at Clark's Corners, which is there where the Home Depot is up the north end, where the road hooks around to go to Sharon Center. That was called Clark's Corners. And so this kid lived with his family right on the curve up there. And he came up with this this idea of making money by screwing people out of their money, basically. (laughs) He started out, everybody made fun of him in school because he was kind of a tall, lanky kid with frilly hair that kind of went everywhere. They called him a beanpole and kids just picked on him. He was uh, an original victim of being bullied. So he was out hoeing a field up at the north end of town one day, and he kept having his mind think of how he can get back to society. And he came up with this idea, the money he raised in hoeing that field and trying to get rid of the plantain weed, which is a popular weed here in and around Wadsworth, that he thought, you know what? I'm going to sell an idea to all the farmers about how to get rid of these weeds. So what he did is he took that money whether it was a dollar or whatever and he invested in an ad that he put in some east coast newspapers and basically says ho far or hey farmers are you interested in a sure way of eliminating the plantain weed and if you would like the solution to it send me a quarter and i will send you the solution So all these farmers sent him quarters i mean hundreds of dollars of quarters that he got just from that one ad and he simply sent him back a postcard that basically says pull them and burn them the only known cure so these farmers of course are irate they all got screwed out of this money and but he made hundreds of dollars and hundreds of dollars back in those days was thousands of dollars so that was one of his schemes another one was um aimed towards kids, and basically he said that, hey, kids, send me a quarter or whatever, and I'll send you a six-shooter gun. And, of course, the kids all wanted guns, hopefully for not reasons like we have today, but back then, just hunting guns and cowboys and Indians and that type of thing. So kids thought they were going to get a real real gun. He sent this wooden gun that had six corks stringed down from it. So that was their six shooter so again he screwed a bunch of people out of money so then he opened up he started this newspaper and this is probably where yes he screwed people out of money but it was also very unique and i think he was kind of a trendsetter so this young young folks gem he had one of his former teachers from the one-room schoolhouse must been the one uh, close to fixler road up north and he told, um, or he asked him if he would write kid kid oriented stuff, which he agreed to do. He said, Yeah, no, I'd, I'd do that. But the scheme was so it would cost you 25 cents for a year's subscription to this. You got it once a month, so 12 issues for a quarter, which was reasonable. But then at the, the last page of it, it would tell kids, You know what? You sell a subscription for me for 25 or send me another 25 cents And you'll earn this prize This probably sounds familiar. You sell two subscriptions. You'll get this prize and that prize You sell 10 subscriptions. You'll get this 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 Probably the first time anybody's ever done that and of course we still do it today with kids doing their fundraisers and catalog sales and of course the kids wanted they wanted to sell the ultimate, and they were doing this all over the United States and into Canada and into um, uh, the islands off the coast. Before long, he had a circulation of around 300,000 of these newspapers. Back in 1870s, 300,000, I calculated out. it would be like the equivalence of 15 million today and all these quarters are coming in (laughs) but then they had to distribute this and they had to load up hay wagons full of these printed copies because at the time they were being printed up at sharon center and they'd have to take them into akron to be mailed well finally they switched it to the wadsworth railroad but then um john clark Ended up being the printer of because they couldn't possibly print all these in this little press area that they had up in Sharon Center So since he got the job of it He ended up building his steam printing company To print all these things because it ran 24 hours a day And all the presses ran off of steam and in fact, they said you didn't want to go into the factory while they were printing Because the men pretty much ran around naked because it was so hot in there but anyway so george bennett started this um he was just what 18 years old and he was loving it he was became a i wouldn't say million but the equivalence of a millionaire and he didn't trust the bank so he wouldn't put his money in the bank he didn't trust anybody he trusted his former teacher and he trusted his mom he didn't trust his dad his brothers sisters whatever so anyway He couldn't have a fast car back in the 1870s, but he had a fast horse Because he was all the time running between sharon center Around the circle down to wadsworth, you know, that's where his connections were So one day his horse was uh, he was speeding on his horse like young people do And he got thrown from the horse And he ended up bedridden. I suspect he broke his back or injured his spinal cord So he spent the rest of his days lying in bed he couldn't get out of bed so it was tragic for him and i assume he ended up getting pneumonia and then dying up in sharon center and uh, he lived out of a hotel up there and he partied hardy it sounded like with his employees and uh, that sort of thing but evidently he was laying there his teacher happened to be there next to his bedside when he was his final moments and he was laying there, and he could only move his head, I think. Maybe his, ar- well, I think his arms he could. But he couldn't get out of bed, and he's just making these sounds, and kind of that death sound. Suddenly, he stood up in bed, threw his arms out, and yelled, mother, and fell back in bed, and he was dead as a doornail. That's a report by his teacher, that he was there, and his mother had died like a, less than a year before him and i think that devastated him but he did yell for right before he died so then they had his funeral up at the um i think it was a congregational church there in downtown <laughs> downtown sharon center around the circle the it's what they use as the city hall i think today or the village hall so his funeral was there he got buried out at western star cemetery and all his employees showed up in black suits, which was pretty typical anyway. But they all had a sprig of evergreen pinned to them. And as they put his coffin down into the ground, they all walked by and took their evergreen and tossed it on top of the casket. You know, some people do flowers, or roses or whatever. Well, they put their, their, their evergreen on there and after they covered him up, they say to this day that he haunts that cemetery because of those evergreens. You know, evergreens don't die out in the wintertime. And that they would see his shadow walking the grounds of that cemetery. It still happens today. Check it out. Western Star. He's buried right close to the gate. So if you ever pull off to the side there, they don't have a big parking lot. But walk through the gate and you'll see his... Uh, Tombstone there Oh P.P. P. Cherry was the name of his um, Teacher so Wabach i'm going to skip over that you can read about him Oh, we did have a guy in town that uh, Raised horses for the union army during the civil war his last name was boffman And his seth boffman and his house is the one across from the dairy aisle there on college street the brick there on the corner of uh, Alt and College Street. And he owned a lot of property only because he pastured out to these horses. He owned like Holmesbrook Valley down through there. He owned where the uh, AC ball field is. In fact, before AC ball, ball field was there, that was a racetrack that he put in. So it was a horse racetrack. And they had a pond in the center and the horses ran, I think it was a quarter of a mile, or they'd have bicycle races, and that was early 1900s. A heavy rain hit it one day, flooded the pond, and well, blew out the dam, and after that, they pretty much closed the track. It was no good to them. So, A.C. Field, I was told as a kid, A.C., why it was called A.C. Field? Because it was on the corner of alt and in college yeah that's not true i learned later when i read this history book that it was the athletic club was the ones that built that horse track so ac was athletic club but it still worked no it's avon by the way it's not alt avon in college that's what was throwing me off anyway so i'm really messed up here in this (laughs) this uh, book, but again, uh, Seth Boffman, he was a big investor in Wadsworth as far as those horses. Page 72, South Wadsworth Developments. Oh, that's why I had on this screen that um, the railroad track because on there, okay, yeah, notice that uh, this being the south end of town, this is where the old depot was. There was an original depot. It burned down, probably from a spark from one of the trains going past. It burnt down. Then the railroad refused to rebuild a depot, so they moved a train car, and that's what this is. This is the train car that they had to work out of. Then eventually they did build that kind of not very fancy depot if you grew up in Wadsworth that was still there as a kid. And then... Um, They hauled it down. Now it's just a parking lot. But you could see across the tracks, and this would be Mechanic Street, which is just south of the uh, railroad tracks. Um, So across the railroad tracks on the south side, there used to be factories lining that, you know, almost as far as you could see down the railroad tracks. They were all wooden structures that, again, have burned down. But they had like a mirror company there, produced mirrors, obviously, in the 1800s and also bed springs and this hard family that i mentioned earlier they they had patents out on these woven springs i think they're more like the um when you get a portable bed and you have those the the wires (coughs) strung they don't have the actual spiral springs in it but just that and so they started a patent on it and sold these all over the united states and also had other factories in other locations. Plus, there was an aluminum place there that made um, aluminum pans, which we have some over in the museum in the kitchen. If you flip them over, you'll see that they were produced in Wadsworth. So again, the South End was an integral part. Uh, Page 73 talks about Dr. Nathan S. Everhard. So um, he was born just across the border uh, on, uh, Eastern Road, so out there where the uh silver creek or the silver Run winery is, basically in their backyard is where everhard's farm was. He was German, came out with the rest of them, and he buddied up with e j young and uh and he was kind of more of the brains to these ohio companies e j young I think was the inventor, the patent the guy that created things the machinist that caused all this to happen and nathan everhard was more the brains on the business end of it and knew how to invest the money and that sort of thing so um, when grace lutheran church over here was built you know the the beautiful structure over there it was ej young and nathan everhard that put a lot of their money and time into making sure that church was built the right way okay over the next several pages for whatever reason this lady was infatuated with the uh, doctors and dentists in town i'm really not going to go over any of them i can tell you on page 75 uh daniel kranz he was one of the doctors that lived in the johnson house or the museum over there as well as the guy right below his name dr thomas ritter he also, he was the second uh, doctor that lived in that house, and then the third doctor was Robert Johnson, and he moved in in the early 1900s, and then Myra was his daughter, who's the one that finished up in the house, literally she she uh, lived there to her end, and she was the fourth doctor that lived there. So some of these others, uh, that, Weiler, you can associate his name with, um, if you ever remember the old Eagles uh, club that was over here by the gas station, the house. That house used to set where Pizzazzio's is and it got moved down the street and then the Eagles bought that house and had their clubhouse there. But that was Dr. Detweiler's original house. Uh, The Hinsdale family is a very good Wadsworth family. Came out in the pioneer days and uh, So the original guy, Elisha Hinsdale, he settled in Norton, just across the the border there on Akron Road. And he owned a farm there, and his practice was making cloverleaf axes. So the axes, you know, they had a head on both sides. So he was a blacksmith guy. And then his family members moved into Wadsworth on Reimer Road close to where the rock cut is. So that guy raised these kids, and these kids were very prosperous uh, when they got older. Um, One of them, the Dr. Wilbert, talks about him. They call that uh, Reimer Road out there Stony Ridge because of that rock cut there close to Bonita Road. And so Wilbert was the first president of Hiram College. He attended there before it was called Hiram College. And the person who ran at that point was James A. Garfield. So he ended up being good friends with him. In fact, here in the library, there's a book back in the history room that says letters between Wilbert Hinsdale and James A. Garfield. So that's back in the history room if you wanted to read their correspondence. But they were close all through. And Wilbert ended up being at uh, University of Michigan. And his specialty was anthropology. So that article talks about Wilbert, then we have Frederick Falk and Frederick Falk lived in the stone house out in front of the high school that they just took down where they're going to be building the CIS school. And it was on that property to the uh, just to the east of it is where that first schoolhouse, the south schoolhouse was. It was really on the Miller property or Jacob Miller which was uh, I think his grandparent or something. Anyway, we have the Falk chair over at the museum. Just as an FYI, you can go over and touch it. And let's see, oh, Thomas later, he was a dentist that you know, lived here in Wadsworth. Like I say, they put all these dentists and attorneys and things in. But his claim to fame is after he died, he lived in the house that's set on this property. And that became the Ella Everhard, Ella Everhard Nathan's wife, bought his house after he died and that became the first wadsworth library the ella everhard library and again it was just an old big house that sat here it wouldn't have been that old back then and so she bought it donated it, and said that's where the library's going to be and it's been here ever since let alone going back to frederick brown's um dr ellis kramer and this one is yeah this one is the dentist. There's another doctor Kremer, who was both a doctor and an undertaker. Now, just think of that. You know, he never went out of business, and sometimes he may have created his own. but um, so his undertaking business was up here, kind of where the city hall is today, and he only had one other competitor, and that was. Mr. Wookter, and his place is that gap over there next to the Chinese restaurant uh, there on Main Street. And you know, you have that open gap where there's no buildings. Well, his house was there and it was a wooden structure. And once it was gone, nobody ever replaced anything with a brick structure. But supposedly Kramer would um, do the funerals of the Democrats that lived in Wadsworth and Wookter was in charge of the Republicans. So. I don't know what the independents did. (laughs) They had to meet somewhere in between. But they were the two undertakers in town. And like I say, the Kramer was a little bit shaky with uh, his ability. On page 82, it talks about one of the hard family people. And again, that hard log cabin, the original, is out at Greenleaf Park there in Sharon Center on County Line Road that used to set Uh, on Reimer Road close to Bonita Road. And in fact, I just got a call from a lady the other day that bought a house, uh, the one old homestead there, and she won the history of it. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot. You need to really investigate in the county and look it up. But I said, I do have the hard memories that this guy wrote, and he references that well, at least the log cabin that was there that he grew up in so this hard guy it sounds weird, but um, He wrote his memories I think from 1818 to 1860 So by the time they arrived and got into the log cabin when he was a kid and then all the way up to the Civil War so he references and that's how a Lot of this history got into this book just from reading his memories how good his memory was? I don't know but boy he sure sounded sharp but um, anyway, he references the log cabin and its construction. But she's on that property, and I said, gosh, it describes, you know, a big rock that was down at the bottoms. And, and he talks about all the wild animals that they dealt with, the rattlesnakes and killing them, and uh, the pigeon problem, that passenger pigeon problem that they had a problem with initially. And I remember as a kid, we had a pigeon problem here especially grace lutheran church they would perch on it in the masonic temple and i don't know how they ever got rid of them but i mean they were thick and when i attended central over there yeah and this is weird because i was sitting in classrooms while all of us were and we'd look back and on the windowsill there'd be all these pigeons set out on the windowsill and some of them doing some naughty things which distracted highly from both the students and the teachers and we got yelled at a few times for turning around and looking and they didn't have any blinds to cover it up but back then the pigeons they describe about how they would roost in the swamps of copley at night and then the morning they'd fly to wadsworth because we had a lot of nut trees and things especially down holmesbrook valley and there and the one person timed it and one morning a flock came over 20 minutes it was thick with these birds just like now you're seeing the blackbirds coming back to roost so the same thing 20 minutes oh, they said it like blackened out the sky as they flew here and made this horrendous roar which you've heard you know these birds fly up and then in the evenings they would go back to copley and hang out there for the night because of the dead trees and uh, just roosting in all those in the swamp area. So you don't find that kind of stuff in this book. That's from me reading all this. Well, anyway, we're going to f- finish up. Oh, good heavens! Yes, I went way too long here. But we knocked a good chunk out of here. Um, here's Kramer and Wookter, Wuch- by the way, in their glory. Here's all the Johnson House. Mu- you can't see it, only me. <laughs> what am I thinking here? But um, I'll show them to you next time. That's all I have. I hope you learned something tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and would like to thank you for listening. You can contact us or find more information on this topic as well as many other resources at wadsworthlibrary.com.